Welcome to Let's Talk Robotics. I'm Nikki, and it's my absolute pleasure to introduce you to the phenomenal talent that we have in robotics and AI in Australia. Today, I would like to introduce you to Tom Casca, CEO and co-founder of Aerologics. He's an opinion writer for the Australian Aviation and Daily Mail. He's a keynote speaker. He's a mentor. He's Dell change maker of 2021, and he's a guest lecturer as well. So there's no end to his talents. Tom, welcome, and thanks so much for joining me. Hi, Nikki. Hi, Ron. It's really great to be here. I'm super excited. Tom, you've got quite a phenomenal resume. You're busy with an MBA, but you've got a master's degree in aviation and aeronautics. Tell us a little bit about your journey. Well, my journey started off when I was uh, a young boy obsessed with technology and aviation. I, um, all I wanted to do was, was become an airline pilot. Um, I had friends and family who flew for Qantas. I was lucky enough to, uh, in the old days, go and sit up in the flight deck. Um, this one time I got to sit up in the flight deck on the way back from New Caledonia, landing into Sydney through some wild weather and became fixated on becoming an airline pilot. So that became my life ambition. I... Um, you know, went through school, did the maths and physics and, and everything I had to do to get the, I guess, the prereqs to get into aviation. And then I uh, went to University of New South Wales. I started an aviation degree. I did uh, flight academy, got my commercial pilot's license, ended up getting uh, the aviation degree, which is um, at UNSW, it's almost like doing an engineering degree. I did a master's as well, wrote a thesis, which is good fun. And then um came out of that uh, ready ready for industry, where I then went out into the bush to get my hours up flying and worked really, really hard in general aviation for many years, getting up the minimum requirements so I could apply to an airline. So that's that's right at the start. After that, I um, eventually got in got into Qantas, which was, a, which was an awesome time. Um, and then I started flying the Dash 8 aircraft around and, and started... Uh, working with them for a number, number of years, flying all across Australia and across the world. And then um, after that, uh, about 10 years doing that, I actually had a huge accident where I broke my neck and shattered my C7 vertebrae and lost my aviation medical clearance. And this is probably, you know, a bit of a segue into the next chapter of my life. But it was a, a game-changing moment uh, for me, I guess. I'd been doing a career my whole life, which I really loved. And I'd done uh, so much work and study for, and then all of a sudden I couldn't do it anymore. Um, like I've got so many questions while you're talking, Katrine. So just touching on um, pilot licenses and things with COVID, I was just, I subscribed to an aviation podcast and I was just listening that they need to retrain the, the pilots now because of the few flying hours I've had during COVID and how to handle um, spins and things. So, I mean, this is obviously something I would think that the the um, airline industry would be very on top of the safety issues now facing people just coming out of COVID. Yeah, absolutely. Look, I've got lots of friends and um, ex-colleagues, I guess, who still work with Qantas and, um, you know, they're back in the simulator and they basically have to do, you know, a couple of months in the simulator and, and do lots and lots of retraining um, to get used to being the aircraft again. Um, being on the ground for a couple of years as a pilot is a really, really long time. I remember when I used to fly, I'd go on holidays for four weeks and jump back in the flight deck and it would, it would take a little bit of time to remember exactly what to do. I mean, 
you just don't, you're just not as proficient. You can almost think of it like, um, like driving your car with your psycho motor memory skills uh, aren't as good if you're not doing them every single day. Um, so a lot of the airlines across the world, absolutely at the moment, they've got bottlenecks in training uh, to get their crews proficient again, um, to get them back in the air and conduct flights safely and efficiently. Um, I'll probably just let them do all of this before I start international travel or any travel again. I'll give the whole year. To set up I'm not. I'm not in being in an aeroplane accident. Good idea. <laughs> so tell us about uh, aerologics. I looked at your website; it's phenomenal. Like I didn't even know you existed until I really delved into it. It's really, really interesting. How did this platform come about? And um, you've got a co-founder, so I mean, chat about. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Look, um, what I'll do, I'll pick it up from where my aviation career ended, which was my horrific accident where I broke my neck. And look, luckily, I had some amazing surgeons who were able to put me back together. So I've got some, I'm actually part robotic now. I've got, I've got some plates through my neck, carbon fibre, titanium, all sorts of things holding me together. So um, I had, look, I guess a couple of years of rehab and some serious time and then on the ground, not really being able to do much. So I got into flying drones. So I'd launch a drone and I'd look in the screen and pretend I was out flying again. And I was interested in robotics and all things technology. So this uh, this was already a passion of mine, which is good. And it got me super excited about the possibilities of drone technology and what the future could offer. So I started a small aerial photography business called AeroLens. And I was out filming this one time and I and I've spotted this enormous shark and I was filming my brother surfing. It ended up going um, viral around the world. You can type in Tom Casca's shark. I think it got uh, reposted by Brady Jenner or something ridiculous overseas. And it was about a five meter great white. And that was captured from a drone and everyone at the time's like, oh, it's photoshopped or it doesn't look real. And that was kind of the start of the drone revolution. And then after that, over the next few years, there were lots and lots of other shark photos. We just haven't, hadn't had the chance to use a robotic vehicle like a drone to look down at these little areas and then go, oh, actually, these animals are out there more frequently um, than we think. So as I was building this company, it was a small service company. I went back and I was studying the MBA and um, at the uh, University of New South Wales, I met my co-founder, Rakesh, who started a company called R2 Robotronics in India. Now, what they were doing is building um, robotic chips that you could put on a drone and control them anywhere in the world. So it was like a micro trip chip you could basically post to someone via a subscription model, and then this would then be controlled um, by a centralized network. and And it was um, pretty fascinating technology. So Rakesh did that for a couple of years. Had a team of about uh, ten to fifteen software engineers, but it was a little bit too early in terms of uh, where the industry was at the time drones were essentially illegal in in india and many parts of the world you really um you know my the pun couldn't really get it off the ground so we got discussing we got sorry chatting about different business ideas and i said well what what happens if we use the same sort of concept but we put it into software and we build an app and a distribution network of thousands of drone pilots and that we can use an uber-based business model uh, and build the company around that. So essentially that's what Aerologics is. It's an outsourced distribution network of drone pilots and available assets, which, which are the drones. And then we've built uh, software around it and an entire software ecosystem 
um, iOS apps, Android apps, and a flight navigation system called Aeropath, which can automate the complex flights of many of the drones. Um, we were lucky enough to get um, seed funding of Nightingale Partners, and um, we also won some innovation grants and were backed by the University of New South Wales as well. We did their Founders 10X program. And then just recently, we've disclosed our Series A cap raise, which will be made public in the in the coming weeks, um, which was really exciting. So I've got some um, big Australian investors on board now to help with our growth and expansion. We've got a team of, uh, in last count, 29. We're hiring about 10 more staff at the moment, spread across two countries, Australia and India. We've got our, our tech team based out of Bangalore and India. Well, congratulations first for raising. Every any company in Australia knows how difficult that is. So really, mm. really well done. Thank um, you. You know, you talk about the, the the maturity of the drone industry, and I think probably five six years ago, the likes of Dr. Catherine Ball talking about drones, like today, like it's just commonplace what what the capabilities are. And um, you know, I imagine in the future, I was just reading again on this uh, drone podcast. The thing that I listened to, Logan, the deliveries is not commonplace. That that you see drone deliveries up in Queensland. Yeah, look, it's um, it's been really interesting to see it accelerate in the last couple of years, and I think COVID has played a big role in this. So, three three and a half years ago, I was over in Washington at the Uber Elevate Summit, um, where we were talking about the EV toll uh, vehicles, electronic vertical takeoff and landing. They're essentially drones that can carry people. And they're talking about launching in Melbourne in 2023, 24. And then they had, um, you know, the head of NASA there and actually had some workable prototypes. And I walked away from that thinking, well, I think this is so much closer than everyone thinks. It's not funny. People are like, oh, that'll happen in 20 years or something. But uh, it, it's way, way closer than people think. Now, we, we then went through COVID and COVID has got people used to being remote. They like low touch remote sensing, the, the idea, sorry, of low touch and remote sensing. Um, you've got, you've had lots of investment into, I guess, tech that supports high bandwidth and automation. Uh, we've got things like Starlink coming out soon that will help with autonomous navigation and instantaneous navigation as well um, for these sort of vehicles. So. I've seen it accelerate, and I think the timeline now is you can look at the next few years, and we'll, and like you said, you'll see delivery in these remote areas, and then you'll see the drones as common, uh, you know, common vehicles of the sky, if you like, in in major cities. So, the Civil Aviation Safety Authority have um, built a digital sky network, which we've just become part of, and this almost acts like a, a central system to command and, and have an overview of all things flying around the country. So you're seeing in various countries around the world uh, this technology being implemented and rapidly scaling. Um, it's got to start in the regionals until they can get, you know, the hours up, the flight hours up and things like that, improve the failure rates. And then you'll see slowly but surely these vehicles will come in and around the cities doing all sorts of tasks, um, which is really exciting. I mean, if we can take vehicles off the road, we can get medical supplies to people uh, quickly. That's a, that's a, a really big passion of mine. That's where I want to uh, help drive a part of our company in the future. We can touch on that a bit later. But um, it's just, yeah, I think it's a lot closer than people think. Yeah, like talking about medical delivery, I'm sure you're aware of Eric Peck and Swoop Aero's work in this space. Um, they've just uh, 
um, I think CASA has just signed off that they can now and guy from the um, aerospace or the little um, airport that they can do deliveries now to the farmers, which of course saves down on a three and a half hour round trip just to get some, you know, a script filled, which is absolutely phenomenal. Yeah, absolutely. Eric and Swift Arrow have done a fantastic job and it's a really, really good application. And um, I, I think another really good application will be working with Indigenous communities throughout regional and remote Australia, um, especially during COVID. Like imagine being able to supply vaccines without having to send a human in there, which would be fantastic. So you can minimise the spread of, of various viruses. I'm, I'm sure there's going to be many more in the future. Hate to say it, but it's a new world we live in. Um, but also, like you said, getting pharmaceuticals and supplies. Um, when I was a, a young bush pilot, I used to fly a Cessna 210 out to an airport about 100 miles away. This is out of Broome in Western Australia. And many, many occasions I'd be flying a package that was about, I don't know, less than a kilo, let's say 800 grams with some medical supplies out to an Indigenous community. Now that charter was about five or $6,000 um, you know, per charter, we're doing multiple charters a week, burning fossil fuels and whatnot. So I can really see an application of drones playing a, a major role, um, helping with the government, helping uh, carbon offset and all that sort of stuff, and also uh, providing a, ver a very valuable resource uh, to these communities. And and to top it off, you, you, you're not, you know, spreading a potential virus, which is exciting. <laughs> Well, listen, and I mean, you talk about we've got a limited amount of drone um, uh, pilots anyway. Uh, there is a qualification needed to be a, a drone pilot, but that's a separate thing. Just before we go into that, because that's a whole other discussion, just on Aerologic. So your platform is based for two. So you've got drone pilots that can actually register there, and then you've got clients that can register there. So you marrying up the two. Talk to us a little bit about how this uh, all works. Yeah, sure. So, so drone pilots can download our app, um, iOS and Android, um, and then they can set up their profile. So they can put in their license, their details, and their drone type, registration, etc. They can then set their um, base location or geolocation of where they want to hear about projects and missions. And they can also um, set what sort of missions they'd like. Uh, to be involved with, whether it's scanning a telecommunications tower or, or doing a cinematography shoot. On the other side, we have clients who can sign up and who might be looking for drone data on demand. So uh, what's an example? So we've got about 9,000 drone pilots in our network, some of our major clients, um, some of the big telcos in Australia, um, big energy companies, infrastructure companies, lots of different real estate companies and things like that. So what they can do if they want to get a project done anywhere in the country, they can basically drop a pin on the map. We've got an algorithm that will find them a suitable pilot and they can then either engage via us through our mission control and we can, we can organise it for them or they can engage directly with the drone pilot as well to carry out the mission. We give the drone pilots all sorts of things, um, autonomous uh, flight system called Aeropath to do the more complex missions um, and, and other bits and pieces in there. And also we're part of the CASA Digital Sky Network. So they get all the airspace information, regulatory compliance information as well on where they're flying. Um, and we've built algorithms around this. So a drone pilot without a license won't be tasked to do a job where a license is required or a certain type of license is required. And, and we screen the, the type of drone, the type of sensor, 
um, we're also taking into consideration the, the weather and things like that as well. Okay, so you've actually got someone then from Aerologic that actually is overseeing this. Like, you, it's not like a wild west out there. There is some sort of no. um, safety control, and how are you managing that? Yeah, so for our enterprise flights, we we have a flight operations team who will manage the the um, pilot network on behalf of the client, okay. and then we do we do have a peer to peer model as well, uh, mainly for the the lower risk sort of jobs. Um, let's say the, I don't know, real estate shots and things like that, where the client has the ability, similar to Airtasker, they can um, engage directly with the drone pilot. Um, we've also built an enterprise portal for the client, so all their data can be displayed there. They get timely updates. Um, we've also built some, uh, we're using AI, sorry, and ML to extract information from the data sets um, so we can pull out information about the asset, where's the rust, where's the corrosion, what's the current state of the asset, and provide reports directly to the client. So with the floods that have been happening recently, we've had our drones activated up and down the east coast of uh, New South Wales, uh, doing lots of work for insurance companies, um, providing roof reports, damage assessment reports. And the whole premise of our business is being able to access this data on demand because we've got this enormous distribution network of drone pilots um, who can, you know, be used as a, a very valuable resource uh, almost at any any time. So you've mentioned about 9,000 on your platform. How many drone pilots do you think are, are current? Uh, first up is, is once you've got a drone license, t- t- talk us through what you need to get a drone license and how does it stay current? So once you've got it, does it mean you've got it forever or are there certain things that you have to do? Yep, um, good question. So you just need, if you if you went out and bought a drone today, you need to register it on the Civil Aviation Safety Authority's website under drones. You need an aviation reference number and then they'll ask you for a serial number of your drone. And then there's a short quiz you'll do. It's called a flyer's licence and this will give you the ability to operate in the sub two kilo category, but you can then operate for hire or, or reward. Um, so you can be a commercial drone pilot the next step above that is getting your remote, your remote pilot's license, um, which typically takes about five to seven days and costs around $1,500 to $3,000. And this will give you the ability to operate more complex drones, typically above two kilograms uh, and, below seven, and below seven kilograms um, in different areas, like um, closer to airports and other restricted areas and things like that. And then there's more and more licenses you can get over time um, to, you know, get better skilled flying much bigger drones and and things like that. Um, In terms of currency, there is no currency requirement for drone pilots. Um, It's strongly advised that you you keep um, upskilled, I guess, but, you know, uh, it's not like airline flying where it's three takeoff and landings every 90 days and things like that. Um, Probably there are some requirements around the heavy lift drones above 150 kilos, but for the the drones that we typically use, which are below two kilos, then there's no there's no currency requirement. But I reckon that's going to change because the landscape of drones and the use of it in Australia is now so prolific and it's becoming everyday because this is going to become an insurance issue. And trust, like I just imagine insurance companies or they're going to step in there because 
they're going to start paying out for things and they're going to go well when last did you fly a drone and why are you flying the drone if you haven't in the last six months for instance done it yeah look it, i think um i think certainly with the the more complex drones absolutely so i mean we work closely with insurance companies we've partnered with aon and precision autonomy um, to provide our drone pilots with really good insurance deals and they typically say that anything below two kilos they're, they're just not worried about because it's all based on energy and mass of when you know if there was an engine failure or something something that light's not going to do too much damage um as soon as you get into the 10 kilo plus range then then they start to be a little bit more concerned with the you know the flight time of the drone pilot and things like that so uh, yeah i think you're right i think as we progress in the future there will be more requirements around the operators of the drones but you've also got to think about the i guess the autonomy of the machines itself and they are flying robots at the end of the day so the the future role of the drone pilot will be more like a a air traffic controller they might be controlling 10 20 30 drones at once and watching a screen but they've got to have the ability to take over if, if something was to go wrong now i'm not saying that's going to happen um you know in the next couple of years but i can see that happening definitely in the future as we scale and doing um there's a few companies are doing it overseas at the moment um where there's you know one drone operator who might be commanding up to 10 drones or more yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that's uh, um, in Sydney and Melbourne, the New Year's Eve show with those spectacular drone displays um, that Rob Sutton and his crew, Merrigan, um, one of their staff members was responsible for the safety aspect of it. But I mean, that, that's a whole nother podcast, so we won't delve into that. <laughs> oh, coming back to you, tell us about the swimming safety project that you did. Oh, right. Yes. Yeah. So um. <clears throat> Yeah, so I consulted for Surf Life Saving New South Wales and um, was involved in setting up the Shark Surveillance Network over 1,700 kilometres of coastline. That was an exciting project, also in collaboration with the Department of Primary, Primary Industry. So we ended up training about 1,000 drone pilots and we had 250 flights a day looking for sharks. Um, at the end of, end of the season, we, we had one of the biggest marine data sets in the world and i think we had spotted the most sharks in the world so it was, <laughs> all our all our fears had come true <laughs> what are they doing with this information don't swim in australian waters yeah so it was um <laughs> yeah so the the, the uh, department of primary industry built a shark smart app and the, the idea is we like uh, for, for example we'd be up flying around ballina and we'd see a four meter bull shark or something like that a ping would then go to the DPI and then they'd let people know who might be on the way to Ballina Beach to have a nice little Sunday swim that there's a four metre bull shark in the area. So it's giving people warning and it's giving them the choice as well whether they want to go for a swim or not. Um, and, you know, we, we saw a lot, of, a lot of sharks. There's certainly some areas up and down the New South Wales coast that were some hotspots. Um, Ballina, Williamtown, Cape Byron. I mean, people already service and things will know about that they'll see them out there but we saw some big big sharks around those areas and when there were some whale carcasses around you you probably i don't know what i think at one stage we counted 40 bull sharks or something so but um look the, apart from looking for sharks we also use the drones to help swimmers in distress uh we had a little flotation device attached to some of the drones that we could drop 
and help swimmers. And that was really cool. I mean, drones are, are perfect for doing that sort of thing. And I can see a massive future there. I mean, you look at the statistics of people going swimming and and losing their lives pretty quick. I mean, it, it, if you can get something, a flotation device out there really quickly, it's all time is the essence, then you can potentially save someone's life, which is awesome. Yeah, of course. I mean, back to the sharks, like, I, I, you know, and especially if you see shark attacks, which is awful, and I'm not making any light of it, but you, of course, realise the sharks, this is their natural habitat. If you're going to go into the water, you know, be aware, you, there could be a shark attack. But I think it's a phenomenal use of technology. And again, I think Bondi Beach Rescue, which I probably watched twice in my life, and I happened to see both episodes, they were going out with their drones and dropping things, phenomenal use of, of drones again. Yeah, and, and on that, look, um, in 2016, I actually went over and spent a month in just next to Kruger National Park at a hotspot, and I worked with the South African anti-poaching unit um, looking looking for rhinos to relocate and move out of the way, move out of harm's way from the poachers. Um, there, was a, there was a time where they were losing around 15 to 20 rhino a night, and I set up a, a drone surveillance program and then could identify them and then get the rangers in to, to uh, tranquilise them and then we'd, we'd take them out. And that was another really good use case of being able to, to use drone tech. Traditionally, they'd use aircraft to be flying over. What happens with the aircraft? They scare the rhino away and they just start running uh, and then they couldn't get a good geolocation on them to remove them and then to have to keep circling around, burning you know, time, money and fuel, etc., with the drones, it could pretty much sneak up on them and, and find out exactly where they are. Um, I just press a button on my screen, get the precise geolocation, relay that to the uh, to the ranger group, and they'd go and you know pick up the rhino and ship him out of there. But um, I mean, I think there's a lot more of that stuff going on over there. I was talking to one of the, the rangers over there the other day, reminiscing about our time there. This is you know back in 2016, so. It's, it's great to see the technology being used for this sort of stuff. I'm amazed they're um, tranquilising the rhinos. Why don't they just tranquilise and shoot the poachers? <laughs> I don't know why they're doing that. Leave the rhinos alone and sort the poachers out. Oh, it's a, no, no, it's such a big problem with the poachers. And, um, yeah, I mean, yeah, I know what you mean. But we'll it's... have these caucuses lined up in South Africa. I'm a South African. I know exactly who expects the problem. <laughs> so I'm just looking at, listen, the other way is just take the human out of the equation. <laughs> right. Oh, yeah. Got to, got to stop the trade. I think it's a, it's a trade from certain oh, countries that's a problem. Mm. Yeah, of course. That is the problem. I mean, those numbers are actually frightening, up to 20 rhinos. There's no ways they could survive that sort of slaughter. No, no. It was a, it was a pretty pretty bad time and i was blown away by the real numbers as well i always thought maybe one or two a night but when i heard 15 to 20 it was like holy crap yeah and listen these guys are these poachers are very well organized they've got serious money behind them uh they've yep. got serious weapons behind them and they don't hesitate using them either on humans as well as the rhinos so yep that's right so you're an opinion writer for the australian aviation and daily mail um what is your prediction? And I'm sure you get asked this. Like, what do you think in five years is going to be the drone um, space look like in Australia, but also in the rest of the world? And following on from that, do you think Australia is um, leading the space? Like, are we are we considered experts in this space? Yeah, I think the um, the applications will will keep growing and growing. I think we'll 
now that we've been using drones to take photographs and and, and um, dropping bombs and doing all sorts of things, people realise that the the vehicles can you know can certainly do a lot of stuff as they get integrated into the airspace and and humans, governments, and population in general get get used to them. Then you'll see more and more applications. I think the e-commerce side of it will certainly they'll have big big presence in e-commerce in the future. That's going to be at scale though, like with um, centralized hubs or maybe on the you know the the depots on the outskirts of cities um, and and also you know moving items around airports and things like that. You'll see you'll see drones doing lots there. And I also think the application of moving you know medical supplies bloods vaccines and things like that will will be one of the first big things to move in the next few years um and we've seen that in various countries around the world there's a company over in the u.s i think it was aeromedi usa just bought uh, i think it's a thousand wind copters or something so it was a pretty big deal they're gonna supplement and um part of the helicopter network so You'll see a lot of companies that traditionally will use helicopters for short hops and things like that start to use these high-powered drones. I mean, some of them are still reasonably expensive, half a million dollars plus. But if you're offsetting a fuel burn of $5,000 an hour, then it makes sense. So you, there'll, be a, there'll be a tipping point where you can use these machines and then start to supplement, integrate them into a, a network that typically would have burnt fossil fuels um, being helicopters, I think, and then you'll see um, you'll see these drones getting better and better, and being able to fly further and further. So it was only a couple. Of, it was only uh, what five years ago I had a um, it's a DJI Matrice nine hundred, and it was about twenty thousand dollars. Now I could go into JB Hi-Fi today and buy a, a Mavic Mini for five hundred dollars, and it's better than this thing I had only five years ago. So as the battery technology gets better, hopefully we don't run out of lithium. Uh, we might have to start mining the moon or asteroids. I don't, I don't know. I'll, I'll let Elon figure that out. Um, but if we don't run out of lithium in the near future, then we can, um, we can have enough lithium-ion-powered batteries to supply all these drones. Yeah. So, all, you know, it's all part of the, the, the big equation at the moment, I think, and it's all a balancing act. Um. Again, back to this podcast that I or this newsletter I um, receive, drones are of course are also being used for drug deliveries, which I just think oh, there's no end to people's creativity. Like if we can do medicine, we can do drugs as well. Look, let's just go. Like any any illegal activities, without find a way around it. So oh yeah, yeah. Do, do you think this is happening in Australia already? Or? Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think there was a a couple of drones went down. I think it's Golden Jail or something like that and it mysteriously fell out of the sky. And uh, I'm, I'm sure it's happening and I'm sure it'll keep happening. It's a, I mean, drones are fantastic vehicles to, to get things into different places. So why not? We've used aircraft before and, uh, you know, lots of other machines. So why not drones? Yeah, anyway. So you're a mentor. Tell us a little bit about this. And for any of our listeners, um, if they wanted you to mentor them, what would that look like? Yeah, so I help um, tech founders, um, mainly through the university that I lecture at, which is University of New South Wales. And um, look, it's it's more about, I guess, founders wanting to get some reassurance in what they're doing. You know, how do they want to, how do they set up a company? Is their business idea viable? 
I act as a bit of a sounding board, I guess, having gone through the process of capital raising to pitching to lots of different investors, setting up, um, you know, a tech company, finding and working with um, a great co-founder, all the all the stuff, the founder's journey, there's, there's definitely no textbook out there that can cover it. And what I try and provide is, is some real world examples and saying, well, there's always lots of different ways you can do something. What I find, um, there'll be some great um, entrepreneurs coming out of university and they'll just say, oh, look, I'll just, you know, I'm just going to go and do what mum and dad said, or I'm just going to go and get a stable job and work at um, like a firm or something like that. But they've got a game-changing idea. Um, now, I sit on a um, affiliate member of the Australian uh, Tech Council, and um, I was hoping in the last budget there'd be some more support for young entrepreneurs. So there's a there's a minimal viable product grant of 25000 but to be honest, that just gives you, you know, some coffee money, really. If you're starting a tech company, you really need a lot more than that to get an idea off the ground. So what I try and do with, with my, you know, as part of my mentor program is look at all the different ways that these young entrepreneurs can get off the ground, um, whether it's friends, families and fools or how to build a prototype, uh, how to get customer engagement, um, you know, product validation, all the important stuff before you can get a serious investor looking at it. So that's kind of what I provide, I guess. And, you know, if you were to be mentored by me, that's that's what I do. And I'd also ask a lot of the hard questions as well. Um, you can have the best idea in the world, but unfortunately, unless you're working with a philanthropist or something, if it's not going to make money and be sustainable, then you know, it's very unlikely you're going to be able to get it off the ground. Yeah, our first question is, what problem are you solving? Great that you've got this idea, but is yeah. problem solving going to actually generate an income? Just talk to us about the Tech Council, because the Tech Council was formed last year, um, and it's to promote and look after the tech uh, landscape in Australia. They released a phenomenal document about uh, what tech um, is contributing to the, um, our budget or GDP and how many people we're going to need in this space? Yeah, look, I think um, so we're facing a bit of a skills shortage, especially with female entrepreneurs. Um, I'm finding it. And look, I guess females with, with coming into tech as well, whether it's robotics, engineering, aviation. So it's been very male dominated. So I've been, I've been pushing hard in the tech council to find avenues and even look for government support to try and attract um, more female talent into the tech space. So for example, like we, we have an offshore team in India, we have a subsidiary and there's a, there's a lot of female um, techies over there who are fantastic. And we just, we're just finding, we just cannot get that same talent in Australia. It just doesn't exist. So um Hopefully, there'll be some more initiatives from the government, but the Tech Council is all about driving innovation from the ground up, and it's it's working with the policymakers. Going, hold on a minute. If you want to lose everyone overseas, we see it happening time and time again. Look at some of the, the biggest tech companies that have come out of Australia. They've they've basically gone and set up over in the Valley, over in America, Silicon Valley. Um, if we don't want that to happen, then we need you know, better support networks from the government um, and also from the, the venture capital community as well. 
Um, so we want to we want to try and keep those innovative ideas here in Australia, uh, so we can you know help help our own community grow and flourish instead of losing it offshore. Well, with the likes of Atlassian being one of the founders or founder members of it, of course, you know, like that serious bucks that's invested there. I, I, I sometimes look at our government and I, I look at people representing us and how many have actually owned businesses that they've actually been through what startup goes. And this, hence the problem. They've got no idea. You, you can't have people representing us that they actually don't know what they're talking about because they don't see the value in it because they're not forced into the situations we are as entrepreneurs. Yeah, look, absolutely. I think that's um, that's a critical one. How can you be writing policy or even teaching something if you haven't really been there yourself? So, I mean, look, that's part of what the Tech Council of Australia does. We have we work, you know, with some all sorts of tech companies from Australia. I think we've got Canberra and, and Alaskan and stuff as well. They're on the board, so we're trying to put this framework together to show the government, hey, this is what needs to be done. We were the founders. We, we we know this is what we've been through, and uh, basically trying to educate them to change policy, which is um, which is good, and it's a it's a really really good initiative. Certainly a step in the right direction, and um, hopefully this can have some real impacts in the coming years. Oh, definitely, and I think the the overriding and majority support they had very very quickly um, when it came out, like it's fantastic. Um, that was actually a segue for you, Tom, to go into politics. So, I mean, I, I saw you just spoke co- over it completely, but when you get bored with all your entrepreneurial work, you can go right now. <laughs> I think I'll stay away from politics. Oh, no. no, my next challenge. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. No, no. So what you're going to call a spade a spade and immediately lose half your voters. Like, nope, I can't do this. <laughs> <laughs> So your yeah. lecturing, how, how busy are you in that space? Sorry, what was that? Last your, bit? your lecturing? Uh, My lecturing, yeah. Oh. Uh, look, yeah, so I've been, I worked with the University of New South Wales uh, Department of Aviation and um, I work with their aviation students and teach uh, subject matter on uh, UAVs. So at the moment, it's just a guest, guest lecturing position. So it's not overly busy. It's every semester I'll go in and you know, prepare and deliver a course. And then I also get invited in uh, sometimes with the AGSM, Australian Graduate School of Management, to teach about entrepreneurs, entrepreneurship and international business as well. So I guess, once again, it's almost like the mentoring position. It's just giving real-world examples of, well, this is what I've been through. This is, this is what we did. Um, and you won't find this in your textbook. <laughs> Oh, that's it. You know, it's the stories retold of sitting down and telling people um, that's so essential. And I don't think people realize it because I, I think most people, entrepreneurs, think, oh, this is this glitzy road. I think the average age of entrepreneurs is about 40, r- roughly around there. So the older people, probably a lot of them are bootstrapped, as like I bootstrapped myself and are still in that situation, um, unless you've got like a really bright idea and you're going you know, to go into serious raising. Yeah, absolutely. Look, it's, um, yeah, I mean, it's fundraising and doing all that sort of stuff. So it's such a, it's such an interesting journey. And yeah, I mean, the entrepreneur journey certainly isn't a glamorous one. I think it's for the first three years, my co-founder and I worked literally seven days a week, um, sometimes 20 hours a day. Uh, so it's, it's busy and there'll be things where you just have to get stuff done. Um, 
it's you know saturday night or something or something happens somewhere there's no one else you if you're a founder and you're it's your baby you're passionate about it so you you never want to see that that baby die right so you you do everything humanly possible to keep fueling its fire um and to keep to keep moving on so you know uh any time of day you've, you've got to be there for it and i think i think um people really need to understand the commitment before they do they go into something as well um and yeah i mean having that's why you see i guess multiple entrepreneurs they've had many businesses that might have failed but failing is a really good thing because it prepares you and it teaches you what not to do next time um i remember being a young pilot and i'd almost you know run the plane off the runway or do something stupid in a light aircraft and go well i won't do that again you learn a valuable lesson yeah. uh in entrepreneurship it's the same you'll you'll definitely make mistakes but it's just learning from them and then correcting your course and then after you know if you have enough goes you'll you'll get through it so it's all about being resilient and being persistent yeah and believing in yourself tom listen it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you any closing thoughts that you'd like to leave our listeners with yeah look if you've got a um if you've got a if you've got an idea um i'd love to hear about it you can just find me on linkedin um that's that's the best place and i think it's you know it's important to believe in yourself and and really go for it if you if you've been thinking about something for a while i i just say why not um it's um you know it's a great time now there's a lot of change in the world there is a lot of uncertainty but that's often the best time to start new businesses and you, and you look at you look at history and you look at what happened in recessions and and the wars and things like that some of the best companies were founded in those times so i'd i'd have a really good think about uh all that sort of stuff like if you've got a really interesting business idea or or you know someone who does maybe give them a little bit of a push um that now's a really good time to to be launching something new listen i'm i'm in all of the work uh that you and your co-founder have done i'm going to be watching you carefully i've got a couple of drone companies on my radar i'm just waiting for them to list on the stock exchange and then i'm going to pounce <laughs> on to them and um, you'll be one of them so thank you it's it's been a very very interesting discussion i've really enjoyed it yeah me too thank you very much for having me and um yeah i look i look forward to following your great success as well thank you so much and to our audience thank you so much for joining us for another episode of let's talk robotics join me again next week and have a fabulous day mm-hmm.